the end of the Mentor Era on episode 70 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 70 of So Many Insane Plays, the end of the Mentor Era, our autopsy of the August 2017 Restricted List update. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Well, Steve, we have some good and exciting announcements this episode, but we're going to change things up and save them for the end of the show. We're going to get right into the meat of the announcements, as we like to do. Do you have any comments before I read what the DCI has posted here? Let's get straight to it. All right. As we like to do, we're going to read and analyze the text verbatim from today's announcement. So the announcement for the August 28th, 2017 ban and restricted list update happened earlier today. And this is what it said from top to bottom. Vintage. Thorn of Amethyst is restricted. Monastery Mentor is restricted. Yawgmoth's Bargain is unrestricted. All other formats, no changes. Effective. September 1st, 2017. Magic Online effective date, August 30th, 2017. There's a link to the banned cards. Okay. The next banned and restricted list announcement is October 17, 2017. More on that later. Here's the explanation. Recently, both the paper and Magic Online vintage metagames have been in an unhealthy place due to the prevalence and performance of two decks, Shops and Mentor. Data from 12 recent vintage challenges reinforces this, with 40% of the top eight decks being Shops and 30% being Mentor. Both decks feature strategies that are powerful, stifle diversity, and can be frustrating to play against. Monastery Mentor has emerged as the clear best win condition for blue decks and can be difficult to combat and recover from due to the number of powerful zero and one cost non-creature spells available in the format. In an effort to weaken such strategies and allow for more diversity in choice of win conditions, Monastery Mentor is restricted. Mishra's workshop-based decks have been dominating the vintage metagame with explosive mana, powerful threats, and artifacts that disrupt the opponent's ability to cast spells. This has been especially evident on Magic Online. In order to weaken the Shops deck in a manner that promotes more interactive gameplay and reduces the impact of being on the play versus on the draw, we've chosen to look at this third category of cards. Thorn of Amethyst and Sphere of Resistance were both candidates for restriction in this case. Thorn of Amethyst is the most powerful disruptive tool in the Shops deck, as it allows the deck to continue applying creature-based threats unimpeded. The case for restricting Sphere of Resistance instead is to avoid splash damage on other archetypes. Other non-shop creature decks are also use Thorn of Amethyst. However, given the strength of shops in the current metagame and a restriction weakening the, the other top deck, we decided to make the more impactful change. As we observe the vintage metagame evolve, we also reevaluate cards already restricted to see if they might be safe to unrestrict. With Vintage, one of our guiding philosophies is to let players play with as many cards as possible. It's the only sanctioned format where cards like the Power 9 and Library of Alexandria are legal, after all. We discussed two cards as candidates for unrestriction, Yawgmoth's Bargain and Windfall. 
Since these cards were restricted, other, more powerful draw engines have been introduced, such as Gristlebrand and Paradoxical Outcome. In this case, we've decided to unrestrict Yawgmoth's Bargain as a safer first step. Windfall has a heavy reliance on play versus draw and is pitchable to force of will. It would be greater risk to unrestrict, especially at a time when we are weakening Shops, a natural predator of Storm decks. It's still a card we'll continue discussing in the long term, and we'll be listening to community feedback on that point. Finally, the next Banner Restricted List announcement will be October 17. We wanted to balance the needs of Pro Tour competitors to test for Pro Tour Ixalan against those of making sure we have our fingers on the pulse of formats if anything does need fixing. Anytime later and we risk disrupting the Pro Tour or the standard Grand Prix that follows. Any earlier and we wouldn't have the right data to make the best decisions. Publishing on Tuesday allows us to take the results of Nationals tournaments into consideration before finalizing any potential changes. Editors note, we're aware of the proximity of the next banner-restricted window to Eternal Weekend, which is why we've chosen to make necessary vintage changes in this window. We don't currently anticipate more changes to vintage with the next banner-restricted window, but in the event that they are needed, we'll have a solution for communicating changes in a way that respects the preparation of Eternal Weekend players. That's a lot, and we're going to have to cover a lot, because <clears throat> unlike the last announcement, there are many, many more and, and elaborate points here. We're going to structure our feedback in such a way that we talk about our praise for the decision, we'll cover some criticism, and we'll talk about the policy going forward, as well as the impact to the metagame. So Steve, where would you like to begin? Well, I always like to begin at the beginning. <laughs> a very good place to start. <laughs> Kevin, in our last podcast... Um, I made a statement, which we're going to play right now. I would restrict, if I was the DCI, I would restrict Sphere of Resistance at the end of August, and I would restrict Monastery Mentor. Those are the two cards I would restrict. So clearly, these restrictions in holistically are, and, and unrestrictions are very close to what I would have done. So I'll, I'll get into the, the specifics of what I disagree with or agree with in a minute, but let me turn now to the second paragraph about Monastery Men. So let's let's begin with the, the top line part, right? I mean, first of all, they, they preface and set up the announcement with data analysis and a presentation of data, mm -hmm. right? That's the first thing. So there's the objective element, which is the data from the 12, from 12 recent vintage challenges. Right. And then there's the subjective component that these decks are powerful, stifle diversity, and are frustrating to play against. So the I also think it's interesting, we'll get to both of those, but the very, very first sentence says that Vintage is in an unhealthy place, both paper and Magic Online. So they, they're clearly drawing attention to the differences, and there's another place in the announcement where he draws a difference between paper and Magic Online, but they're making the point that they're talking about both. They're looking at both, right? That's yep. important. Yep. But what I think is important also in that first sentence is they say prevalence and performance, which suggests that they're looking both at the overall composition of the metagame, and the composition of top eights. Yep. And the fact that they're looking at both, I think, is great. Um, I, I, so I think that's a, that's a positive thing. Um, the second thing is that um, it's interesting, the data from the 12 recent Vintage Challenges, so I had accumulated this data and posted on online. I mean, I posted, after the first 10 challenges since the restriction, I posted an announcement on Twitter and the Mandarin and elsewhere summarizing the results. And I think we presented that in one of our last podcasts, Kevin. Yep. And then I had updated it. But what's actually interesting is that if you look at the the last 
12. So he says, this is written, you didn't mention this, but this is, the DCI announcement is usually sometimes separated by an explanation. So the DCI will publish its announcement in a, in a single announcement, and then they'll be, they'll say like, look for Mike Turian or Eric Lauer or Aaron Forsythe's explanation this Friday or whatever. And then right. they'll link, link to a, an explanation. But this article, it says, by, is by Ian Duke. <laughs> mm-hmm. So presumably he had some um, influence or say in, in terms of this. And we, you know, we don't need to get into the details of the composition of the DCI, but I'll just flag that. Um, but it's interesting that he says data from recent vintage challenges. He doesn't specify which ones. He says with, with shops being 40% of top eights and Mentor being 30%. Well, I actually ran, and we're recording this the day of the announcement, 8-28. I ran the data analysis, Kevin, on the last 12 vintage challenges which take you from 624, it's June 24th, to uh, August 26th. And that's 96 decks, 12 times 8 is 96. And there are 42 shop decks and 34 decks with two or more mentor, which means that 44% of the last 12 de- uh, challenges, top 8s, are shops deck. 44%. That's wow. 4%, 4% more than what he credited. Wow. And, and mentor is actually 35.4% of those top eight decks. So it's 5.5% more than he credited. So, and I just want to point out that this data is about roughly four weeks more current than than our last show, right? Yes, yeah. So it's gotten apparently even slightly more (laughs) dire (laughs) than when we last analyzed the data. Yes. So I think his data is right on. He's pointing to the right data. He's looking at the right data. I also think the sub- the subjective element matters. It's clearly stifling diversity and, and clearly frustrating to play against. So I think that's I think that's clear praise. We'll we'll you know we'll do our praise first and then we'll go to criticism. <laughs> um, anything? Any observations on the first paragraph besides those I've made? No, I think that's I think it's a good summary. Moving on to the second paragraph, this is two sentences that summarizes the restriction of monastery mentor. Uh, I don't think he's wrong. When he says the mentor is the clear best window condition for blue decks, um, I do think he's right about the other point, points about the difficulty of combating and recovering. And I do think that promoting, restricting it will promote more diversity and win condition. So, Kevin, what do you think? Why do you think monastery mentor should have been restricted? I know your your current your position in our last podcast was you didn't think it should be restricted, but if you it, you did not think it should be, but if you did support this restriction, what is the main reason to restrict it in your opinion? And do you think they nailed it? I do feel like they did. I feel like the combination of how difficult Mentor is to combat, yeah, combined with the fact that it is simply the best thing you can be doing with blue mana, basically in Vintage, with your Force of Wills <laughs> and your Preordains, right? Yeah. All signs point to a lack of diversity in in strategic and you know goals for decks. Even the Paradoxical Outcome decks, some half of them, give or take, are still just Mentor decks at heart that yep. are still just killing you with Mentor. We've talked about that at length when we analyzed the outcome decks. And so I do think that these two tent poles that they've put up here are are pretty good. I don't like... I mean, well, let's, this get, is, let's, this, save, let's save the criticism for okay. a minute. I, but yeah. I do agree that this this the phrase um, can, uh, best win condition and can be difficult to combat and recover from are both true and probably the most important elements. Good, great. So... You know, I think that the case for restricting Mentor was clear. I think it should have been restricted instead of Gush. Right. So I'm, I, I agree with everything. I and think certainly it's a good, Probe. I think it's a, yeah, I don't think Probe should have been restricted. I think Mentor, this is a good restriction. 
what I don't necessarily entirely agree with the description, the justification as it's articulated, but I'll save that for the criticism section. Um, anything else about mentor at the moment, or can we move on to the next no, statement? Let's keep going. Okay. So the next statement says Mishra's workshop decks have been dominating the vintage metagame, which is true. And then it breaks Mishra's workshop decks into three categories, right? Explosive mana, powerful threats, and artifacts that disrupt the opponent's ability to cast spells. I think they are absolutely correct to hone in on those third category of cards. And I think the debate over Thorn and Sphere is the correct one to hone in on. So I think they actually, that entire paragraph is correct in my opinion. I don't know whether the dis distinction between powerful threats and disruption is necessarily a sharp distinction. We'll come to that in a minute. <laughs> because, you know, the, most of the threats and disruption are like Lodestone Golem or Thought Not Seer. But there is, there is a distinction there. Ballista, Ballista is a powerful threat that doesn't really directly attack the opponent's ability to cast spells. Sure. So I think that's a, a, a completely justifiable paragraph. I think it's a strong paragraph, and they did a good job presenting the reasoning. Um, the next paragraph is where I have some criticism, so I'll save that for the criticism section. Um, but is there anything else that you want to say about um, about the two paragraphs in praise, these two paragraphs? <laughs> I, I know what you're going to say criticism-wise, but I do want to point out that I think they have acknowledged the distinction, the functional distinction between Thorn of Amethyst and Sphere of Resistance, right? Yes. They've properly categorized the way that they're different in function, and they've clearly just chosen a line on one side that's different from your own opinion, and, and I acknowledge both sides. So I just, you know, my appraise is that they have properly referenced and recognized the different functions of the two spheres. The, the uh, let's see, counting fifth paragraph now sets up the um, possible unrestrictions. And what's interesting about it is they articulate this guiding policy, which is to let players play with as many cards as possible. I love this because <laughs> because what if you think of this is a really, um, in my opinion, carefully chosen phrasing because it's not just saying that we want we we want as few cards on the restricted list as possible, but it's also saying that. Um, we want you to be able to play with the most powerful and the oldest iconic cards. Yes, yes. I think this is just, I think it's a great, it, it's not just that we want, um, you know, we also want people to play with as many cards, meaning in maximum quantities, not yep. just as few, few, right, as few. So I, I, I love this. I, I think it's an excellent articulation of their guiding, one of their guiding philosophies. I, it's also interesting they say one of, which is, this is a really well, I think, crafted phrase. And I you know, think it's great. It, it borders on criticism, but the fact that they don't cite this specific concept repeatedly is kind of a travesty, right? Well, they they I've gone through and looked at a lot of things. They've said it in different ways in different contexts, but you know, it's it yeah, they should say it more often. I agree. And, and I think you <laughs> yeah. and I would agree that bargain could have safely come off the list a few announcements back, right? If we'd been thinking critically about it. Yeah, I, I agree. As soon so, as Gristlebrand was printed, almost <laughs> bargain but, could have come off the list. True. I mean, Gristlebrand came out in what two thousand eight or nine. <laughs> right. Exactly. Think, yeah. I think anyway, it might have been two thousand nine. I think two thousand nine. Anyway, what's interesting is they they admit we we focused on two cards, right? Yogmas bargain and windfall. And I think in our last podcast. Mm, I'm not sure if you, you took the position, but in the last podcast, and I'll direct people exactly to it, it was episode 69, broadcast on August 4th. At the 148.00 minute mark, an hour and 48 in, we talked about Yawgmoth's Bargain, then two and a half minutes later, we talked about Windfall. And in that discussion, I said I thought it was the, those were the safest possible unrestrictions. You obviously had a different set of opinions, but I think we both agreed those were among the safest, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that they, I think it was a smart, first of all, I want to applaud them for taking the time to discuss unrestriction, mm -hmm. um, taking that seriously. 
because it's it's they've t done a lot of work paring back the restricted list over the years. They've taken a lot of cards off, so it's harder and harder to figure out what to remove. And I think that having that discussion at least periodically, if not you know more frequently than you know once a year, is is really a good step in the right direction. And I think that the assessment they made that bargain is the safer unrestrict is absolutely correct. I think windfall is riskier. And mm -hmm. bargain is bargain is just super safe. I mean, I spent we only spent two and a half minutes on it in our last podcast because it's so simple to lay out. Yeah. Essentially, in terms of sh show and tell, it's weaker than Gristlebrand. Uh, in terms of um, casting it, Gristlebrand is only marginally more difficult. Um, Dark rituals don't see a lot of play at the moment right now because of mental misstep. And people, when they play combo, they're playing with Mox Opals instead of Dark Ritual. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with Dark Ritual, Dark Petition is the more dark, is the cheaper and more efficient. threatening. Yeah, right. Efficient, for five uh, mana, you solution. can just go writ, 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 uh, dark petition, necro, right there. Yep. So I, I think this is, you know, obviously people could play. I, I think it's a great. The other thing we said is that we think the vintage metagame is healthier when dark rituals are a, a real presence. And right there, they're, right now, they're a 0% present, yeah. basically. Very, very low. <laughs> very, very low. I mean, I've actually been looking for the history of vintage series back at historical vintage metagames and. Two metagames that I think were the healthiest that we've ever seen are most of 2006, which was where Grimlong and Pitchlong were actually decks. And then that three-month period between June and September 2008, which is where TPS won the Vintage Championship, and it was you know about 12% of the metagame. That, those were very diverse metagames. Historically, whenever Dark Ritual decks have been more than 10% of the Vintage Top 8 metagame, You've had very, very diverse metagames. You've had rituals, null rod decks, drains, and workshop decks in high representation. So I think trying to craft a metagame where workshop, where dark rituals have a greater presence is a very positive step for vintage. I don't think we're going to see much bargain, <laughs> but I think it's a very healthy thing to try. Don't you agree? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Also, okay. regarding this fifth paragraph, I just want to acknowledge that unrestrictions carry we with them a little bit of uh, they require some diligence and to relinquish a bit of ego investment in the ban and restricted list and what i mean by that is you're talking about an organization that's made up of a relatively small group of people you know members of r&d who at some point in the past decided to restrict yogmoth's bargain right and, and i believe it was correct <laughs> right. at the time but it's it's important to always be uh, internally consistent, but also self-critical about the nature of the list and recognize that a past restriction is not necessarily a permanent choice and that changes in the metagame and card printings and similar and other factors um, mean that past choices can be undone and there's no there's nothing wrong with that. So I just want to acknowledge and respect the fact that this takes a certain kind of diligence and a discipline, mental discipline to to work this way. I, I think that's well well said. Um, I want to save any discussion over the um, final paragraph. I think it's paragraph seven and paragraph eight until later. Yeah, okay. Because uh, it doesn't really fit into the praise or criticism. It's mostly a timing discussion. So we'll talk right. about that later. Um, I did want to just make a holistic, another holistic comment. It would have been very easy just to restrict one thing or the other. And I, I'm on record saying that I prefer, in previous podcasts, probably like a couple years ago, I've said I don't think they should ever restrict more than one card at a time. But no. when I said that, what I meant is that that what I meant was that there's a metagame where there's one problem, right? <laughs> and so I didn't envision a metagame where you had a duopoly, yeah. right? An oligopoly. I had always envisioned a monopoly, 
like a deck that's dominant. Right. And and, and you need the to reason, just address that deck. Right, that deck. And so my policy is just restrict one card because if you restrict two cards to solve the same problem, you risk sweeping more broadly than necessary. You yeah. risk restricting a card unnecessarily or unjustifiably. You restrict you risk sweeping too broadly and and overbreadth. And so I think this was absolutely correct. You know, at one point Rich Shea had said uh, in in I think it was in July that they should only restrict mentor and maybe misstep and nothing from shops. And I think that was just wrong. The problem is that if you first of all, workshops are the bigger part of the metagame. If you restrict mentor alone, you're going to make shops stronger. You have to hit if you're going to hit mentor, which is an open question, like they could say maybe we don't need to hit mentor because it was only thirty percent as opposed to shops, you absolutely have to hit shops as well. If you do hit shops without hitting mentor, then you risk boosting mentor. So I think you you are in a legitimate situation where you have to restrict. If if you're going to restrict one or the other, and you probably should just based on the empirical data, you have to do something about both. So yeah. I would applaud them for doing both. Don't you agree that if they yeah. do one, they have to hit the other? Yes, I use the analogy in in some offline conversations with people on this topic. I use the analogy of Pluto orbiting Chiron. Because I, I really feel like there was this relationship between mentor and shops and that to act on one was going to simply bolster the other and was yes. going to necessitate another action, no matter yes. which direction you came from. Completely agree. It would have made yeah. things even more unbalanced, yeah. especially with the timing so close to the Vintage Championship. This is the time to get it right. This yeah. is the time to act because it's not likely we're going to see more restrictions before Vintage Champs. So, uh, you know, I would agree with that. I mean, the odds of this action really upending the metagame in some worse fashion is very slim. I think very, yeah. I, I would argue that the only risk from this action is that is, there's a chance it doesn't. It still doesn't do enough. Do enough, yeah. But we'll talk about that in, in the future of this episode. Yes. I mean. So let's, you know, we, our job is not to praise the the DCI. It's to <laughs> it's it's to comment. You know, it's to be honest with our audience, and and so I think they deserve a lot of praise. You know, I think there have been some missteps in recent months and years. I think the restriction of Gush over and, and Probe over Mentor was a mistake. And I think that their previous announcement bears that out. The reasoning just made no sense. They thought that workshops would go down. It didn't. They thought Mentor would go down. It didn't. Neither one of those things happened. Yeah. We're on record beating that dead. So let's get off of that. So I, they deserve a lot of praise. There's, these were smart decisions, well explained, well articulated. But there is also room for criticism here, and so I think we need to we need to be critical as well. We need to bring a critical eye to these. You know, this they're the policymaker, and we're the public, <laughs> and so I think that, that you know where criticism is is warranted, we should we should not hold back. Um, should I, let me take the first stab though. I, I think sure. that you're I think you're right about mentor. Your point that it is the best win condition for blue decks, but I think the the problem is. That the articulation here sort of suggests there is just like a set of blue decks, and that um, restricting mentor will allow more diversity in the choice of win condition. I actually don't think that's the point of restricting mentor. I think the point of restricting mentor is there will be more diversity in the choice of blue decks, strategic archetypes. Right. So, so I don't think it's so much about. Yes, it's true that that mentor pushes out win conditions, and I think that that what they say is true. There's nothing that's not true here. But I think it slightly misses the point. It's a subtle point that mentor mentor is such a powerful win condition that essentially, you know, let me let me do this, Kevin. <laughs> There's a statement that I made on April 24th. It's only about 30 some seconds here. I want to play it right now. 
I think that you're going to see faster mentors. That is, you're going to see in big blue decks, mentors are going to come out more quickly than they did in gush decks. Gush deck is fundamentally slow. Gush kicks in on turn three at the earliest. And these mentors are going to come down faster. They're going to generate monk tokens faster. And they're going to be more aggressive and brutal. I think we've already predicted all this in previous podcasts, but I don't think there are going to be four mentor decks. I think there's going to be two, and the best one is going to be determined very quickly. I think the the one mentor deck is going to be you just take the, all the restricted blue draw spells like Gush and the Delve spells, and you put them all in one deck with cards like Jace, Vrin's Prodigy, and so on. And the other is just going to be one that uses whatever the other better best draw engine is, probably paradoxical outcome combined with all those cards as well and i think it's going to be very fast and i I think it's going to emerge quickly and it's going to consolidate fast so in that statement i just made you know i reiterated the point that i think that there's going to be two blue decks paradoxical decks and mentor decks that predominate Uh, sorry paradoxical decks and then you know the gush one gush one treasure cruise one dig through time blue decks that are going to be fueling men the point though is that Mentor is so powerful, it channels all these, these basically the two, then what I said would be the most powerful blue draw engines into Mentor decks. The point of restricting Mentor isn't that we want the paradoxical outcome decks to now play with, I don't know, like Young Pyromancer or whatever, and the, you know, the Mentor <laughs> decks to do the same. Right. The point is that we want to open up the range of blue decks. We want to see paradoxical decks and the blue stew deck with one gush and one treasure cruise and one dig and bug decks and other blue decks that's the point right yeah yeah and so what i think they could have said is that it's such a powerful win condition that it causes all the blue decks to channel kind of through it and so restricting it will actually diversify the strategic engines that exist in in the blue set this kind of the quadrant of met the metagame that is blue so i don't know how you pithily articulate it but they could have said something like we believe that the restriction of Monastery Mentor will diversify blue strategies, both at the strategic level and in terms of diversity and choice of win condition. That Something like that, I think, would have been slightly stronger. But I'm really a little bit nitpicking there, right? I mean, because what they said is pretty pretty much on. Yeah, the, the distinction between a win condition and a strategy is an important and, and critical one to understand, you know, how decks operate. Right. But, but from an announcement standpoint, it does smack a little bit of just... That's what we were referring to yes. <laughs> when we said win condition, right? So you, you have to keep in mind that these announcements are tailored for a broad audience. And yes, well, obviously it's it's meant to address vintage players, but it's also meant to address uh, you know uh, speak to people who think about the format in all different ways. And so I well, think that that specificity is correct, but also minor in the bigger picture of the whole announcement. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, if you look at the 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 paradoxical outcome mentor deck that's won the last two vintage challenges. It's been identical. It's a paradoxical deck that has two mentors and one tendrils, I think. Yeah. And so you could that deck can just take out one mentor and probably doesn't change much at all, right? Right. It probably it probably the the blue stew decks, like the ones that I had been doing very well with, got second place at the NYSE, that deck has to that deck can simply it has to completely retool. Yeah. You know, it was four mentors. Yeah. And and that but the point is that that deck is going to be weakened which will create more space for other blue decks, yep. right? I think, I think so it's not just that there'll be more diversity in win conditions. There'll be there, there'll be more, which is true, but there'll more, be more strategic diversity. Yeah. There'll be more color combinations. There'll be more, we'll see more blue draw engines of different kinds of draw engine, I think. And so, yep. you know, I, it's, it's not going to just be the, the restricted gush uh, delve, the delve, which I've called the DAC delve draw engine. 
right. a paradoxical outcome. I think it's going to be we're going to see some opening up a bit in 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 terms of the other win conditions. I still but we'll think save that, that for our metagame predictions. Yeah, we'll save that for the metagame. Okay. <clears throat> the next, I think the more serious criticism in this announcement, I think restricting Thorn instead of Spear was a mistake, and they acknowledge the danger of splash damage um, here. And specifically, the reason that I wanted Spear restricted instead of Thorn is that I did not want to hit Tribal Eldrazi and White Eldrazi. Mm-hmm. White Eldrazi and Tribal Eldrazi depend on Thorn, at least as we've seen. And I think restricting Thorn is going to weaken those decks. And I like White Eldrazi as a deck. I like Tribal. Tribal Eldrazi is an important budget choice for Vintage Champs. Champs, but they've just they've just weakened. I think unnecessarily, significantly, and I think unnecessarily. And actually, I think it's going to potentially have second order problematic effects. Which I'll get to in a second, but let's 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 get to the main point here. The main point is, they say we wanted to hit, we decided to make the more impactful chain. That doesn't make much sense to me. <laughs> if you go look at all the workshop decks, do the workshop decks really? I mean, is there is there I, I, what is there an empirical basis for that, Kevin? In your opinion, what do they mean by more impact? I believe what they're referring to is the gameplay loop that exists where. Uh, Thorn resolves on turn one, and then the workshop deck can continue to deploy its threats on the subsequent turns, and the and the opponent cannot. Oh, so it's less I, symmetrical. I believe I that's what they mean by impactful is that the games, yeah, the games where the Thorn just shuts off the opponent but doesn't impede the, the workshop player. Ah, they're trying to yeah. eliminate those kind of games as opposed to the sphere games where the sphere slows both players both in a uniform players. fashion. Yeah, got it. That's what I, I think I, they're referring to by impact. I, I think that Sphere is just as important to the Workshop decks as Thorn. I mean, there may be decks that have like three Spheres and four Thorns, but I, I think Sphere restricting Sphere would have been more damaging to Workshops because it, it means that the Workshop decks, um, I think Sphere is the more, I think it's the stronger threat against a, a, raw, a wider ver, diver, diversity of strategy. Because you know, a lot of creature decks just don't care as much about them, so. Yeah, so what you're what you're referring to is that Thorn is easier for other decks to metagame against. Yes. You, yes. Need, you need to look is... no further than cards like Ingot, Ingot Chewer. Exactly. As a perfect exactly. example. Yeah, I, I like the fact that Ingot Chewer is good. Now Ingot Chewer is, of course, substantially weakened. We can talk right. about that later. Yeah. Um, I think I think they should have hit Sphere instead of Thorn. I think there's two problems with it. I said first they just unnecessarily gutted the Eldrazi decks. <laughs> and, I, and I think that Sphere is the more impactful restriction, this... frankly. I think you make a very good point. I would just point out that this is a very complex systemic choice to make, right? Yeah. And it goes, I think, a little bit beyond ban and restricted list policy <laughs> to for for them to analyze the metagame and all the interacting decks and talk about what happens when you make one of these choices and then the other and all the ways that, you know, the second and third order effects. I mean, I am not criticizing your criticism. It is apt, but I also feel like that is a very sophisticated analysis, and for a format that the DCI pays comparatively the least attention to, I think we shouldn't expect a, <laughs> a, that level of understanding necessarily. I think they've they've shown that they have the first and maybe second order understanding here, and they've given a decent and reasonable explanation, and their choice is, you know, at face value, not not illogical, I guess is what I would say. Uh, so I'm not very critical about this choice. I would actually rather they had gone even simpler 
and just and just acknowledge the fact that restricting sphere is going to hurt the Eldrazi decks directly. Yes, yes. And I, I wish they would have concluded that that's a bad thing, yes. which is a, a lower order decision making process, but I think right. would have achieved the right result in this case. Right. I just don't think the logic makes much sense. So we'll get to this in the metagame prediction, but I, I have to hint at this here, or, or at least you know nod towards it, which is that the El- Tribal Eldrazi is important in the paper metagame, and it's also a deck that's going to run a lot of Null Rod. So what yeah. they've done is they just knocked out one of the most important paper decks with Null Rods. Yeah. And that is especially important if we are trying to prevent the restriction of paradoxical outcome, which, <laughs> which I think is actually an important goal, frankly. I think that what we... I mean... I think that we are on a path where we've seen a lot of restrictions. And the danger with restrictions is that they lead to more restrictions because they continue to keep the metagame unbalanced. So I think that they should do everything they can to prevent the restriction of paradoxical outcome. I think that <laughs> hitting, I think hitting Sphere, ironically, would have, would have kept paradoxical outcome more in check because Thorn is used by a lot of Null Rod decks. That's why. Anyway, so... I, I think another way to, to a way to quantify what you're what you're observing here and predicting, which I agree with, is that w- with a restricted thorn, there are uh, you know let's say x there's a reduction of a certain amount, and you result in x uh, spheres that are played in the metagame. If you restrict sphere, there's a reduction of spheres, but then there are y thorns played in the metagame, and yes. what you're saying is that y is greater than x. That is, yes. the resulting metagame would still have greater number of sphere effects in it, yes. reducing the risk of paradoxical outcome running rampant. Yes, exactly. They'd have more, you have more sphere effects in the metagame, but the percentage of taxing decks that it uses Mishra's Workshop would decline. More, yeah. More, yeah. I think. And As I it think- stands now, what we've done is we've consolidated, I think, the taxing archetype or group, uh, you know, overarching archetype, I should into- say into just workshop decks now and there's another danger with that which is if this doesn't work then (laughs) workshop has to be restricted and you have thorn restricted then you really screwed up taxing that's another problem yes this is not very forward looking yeah this was a misstep uh i think it was it they didn't quite think this through as carefully as they should have the other the other this was actually a piece of praise i wanted to point this out they did actually draw the distinction between shop's performance and paper and magic online they said mishra's workshop decks have been dominating the vintage metagame this has been especially evident on magic online it's a subtle point but that entire function of the second sentence there is to distinguish between the paper results and the online results. and the reason that matters is because mishra's workshop decks are to some degree artificially suppressed paper because the availability of workshops themselves Mm -hmm. so even in proxy metagames you know, if you have 10 proxies, you need both Power 9 and Mishra's Workshops. Certainly in paper, it's even greater. So Magic Online, in some sense, reveals the true power of Mishra's Workshop, which is 44% of top 8s on the last 12, medica- 12 challenge. And I think for those who listened to our last show, you'll note that the paper results for Workshops were similar, but not quite as high. Not quite as Yeah, I, they were over yeah. 30%, but they were like 35 or something like that. And I do think the availability issue is a factor there. So the main, I think, yeah, I think it's a small one, but I do think it's noticeable. The main criticism is just I think they should have hit Sphere instead of Thorn, and that's it might not be terrible in the short run, but it could have significant long-term consequences. And as we've known, small errors have cumulative effects over time. I mean, restricting Chalice instead of Lodestone Golem, restricting Gush instead of Mentor. So I'm I'm nervous about this, but I'm still overall pleased with the overall <laughs> results. So let me ask you, Kevin, what do you think big picture? Are you 
do you are you happy with these restrictions unhappy they're, they're not what you wanted but what do you think yeah yeah i mean i'm the sort of person who was not exceedingly unhappy with the current state of things i still found a, a satisfying bit of diversity i was able to play different <laughs> decks part of that is you know my local metagame and i acknowledge that part of that is my place in the format which is that i don't I don't always feel the need to come in first place at every tournament that I play in. I find satisfaction in exploring the nooks and crannies of the metagame. So for my personal uh, edification, not it was not absolutely necessary. However, given that action was taken, I'm, I'm pleased that they decided to hit each of the workshop and mentor pillars in this case, because I, for the systemic reasons we've already addressed, I do think that the Thorin versus Sphere choice was close and debatable and i agree with everything that we've said so far in terms of i think this was probably not a good choice in the long run it will have second and third order effects that that they didn't acknowledge here and i would rather see uh you know uh eldrazi archetype survive this right, choice and i right. think it, it basically doesn't yeah but so it still overall, has it's a mixed, it, the white yeah. eldrazi still has dahlia but the problem is that the null rod deck is the is the tribal deck yeah so. yeah so overall i think it's a mixed bag you know i would grade this as like a b plus i think there's yes. a lot of there's a yeah. lot of good things to point to here and a couple of a couple of things wrong that are important but don't overshadow the the fact that i think this was probably good action altogether i i in the plus column i also like the fact that they decided to just restrict it to two restrictions I mean, at the end, Rich Shea was calling for like five restrictions. <laughs> it would have—I would not have been shocked if they had restricted paradoxical outcome. And paradoxical outcome is in in the latest challenges almost as much as shops in, in mentor. But the fact that they resisted pulling the trigger on that, I think, was discipline and was also uh, conservative and cautious. And I think that was great. So where do we go from here? Well, I know our audience, Kevin, wants to hear about the metagame predictions we're <laughs> going to make. But before we do that, before we do that, I think we need to spend a minute on the last two paragraphs. Yeah. I think we need to talk about the mechanics and timing in this odd editor's note. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to call this out, but I, I will. The editor's note that you read was added after this announcement was posted. Yeah. <laughs> which is interesting. It's also interesting it's called an editor's note because... This is a DCI announcement that has an explanation by Ian Duke. Yeah. So who is the editor? <laughs> <laughs> the world may never know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it, why wouldn't it just be Ian Duke? You know, it, anyway, it seems like a uh, way of, of framing it there. But anyway, here's, here's what I'm going to say. So we have spent some time, Kevin, talking about the timing of Bennett's announcement. Any of our long-time heard us talk about... Uh, you know, going back years now, like in probably episodes in the, you know, teens or 20s, we said that we thought the ideal timing for restrictions should be the midpoint between set releases uh, right. because, you know, whatever. Um, we have a whole explanation for that. But here they said that the next band and restricted list announcement will be October 17th. But this is the weird thing. Ixalan is pre-release is September 23rd to 24th, and the release date is September 29th. In the past, so they've gone on this pattern of a couple years ago, they said, we're going to time ban and restricted list announcements, not at the quarterly times like it used to be, Jan 1st, uh, March 1st, June 1st, uh, um, 
October 1st, December, it was, sorry, yeah, October 1st, December 1st, uh, January 1st, and March 1st. That used to be the quarterly announcement, and then they, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's been a long history of, of timing changes right. in band membership lists now. But this is interesting because they said they were going to try and sync it up. A couple of years ago, they said they're going to try and sync band membership list announcements up with set releases, right? Yep. But then they announced earlier this year they were going to also do what we suggested, which is between set releases, right? Right. And then they said we're going to try and make sure we don't restrict a lot. But then they created Im- almost immediate exceptions where they said that we're going to skip an announcement this summer. Yeah. <laughs> and so they keep tinkering with it, right? There's no set pattern. This is another example of tinkering. They're trying so to they, have their cake and eat it too. Right. And they, I think they've stumbled into what we predicted at the beginning, right? Which is that can't you don't you can't really do it at the time that they right wanted the, to because you yeah, need right time the set to, changes. Yes. Yeah. Because set changes metagame. So they've stumbled inadvertently what we said was a problematic policy years ago, <laughs> and now they're trying to create all these like weird workarounds, right? It's yeah. like, and so now what they've done is this extremely bizarre ad hoc workaround <laughs> where you have essentially a release date of September September 29th, a pro tour of November 3rd, and they're essentially timing the restriction announcement exactly in between that. Right. So it's like it's like. <laughs> How can you split this up any more finely? I mean, can you carve this up, right? Can you ca- carve this up any more granular? It's it's hilarious. It's like <laughs> it's like they want. I, I'm speculating here, but it's, this is a well-founded speculation. It's like they want to see the metagame for a couple of weeks on online or whatever, and then they're going to make their announcement a couple of weeks before the pro tour, but not too close to the pro tour, right? Because they don't want they want the pro tour to players to have settled expectations. This is just too weird for words. I mean. <laughs> what do you have to say about you it? Know, <laughs> there's one word that comes to mind when you describe that and what their goals are, and the word is modern. This is a very modern problem. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't mean modern the format, lowercase m. What I'm talking about here is Magic Online, especially for the for the standard format, which this is what the Pro Tour is mostly about. Um the standard format is solved so quickly online, and we've we've labored back and forth about the data sharing issue, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what Wizards R&D can see from a standard format within days of its release on Magic Online. And so I think what they've, as you said, stumbled into basically here is a, is a decent solution in the sense that they get this deluge of data with a new set release online. Two weeks is enough time to see major trends and major Shifts. problems, right? Yeah. And the metagame shifts so fast online for the formats that are most popular that they're going to get a, a raft of data. They can stamp out any major problems that spike up, at least in the standard format, and yeah. and still give the you know the pro tour competitors pro tour, uh, two to three weeks of testing time that's relevant. So relevant testing beforehand, and then if any major problems it, come up, you know fixed revised testing. Uh, one, I, think, I think it's okay, but it really screws yeah. with vintage champs. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to get to that, but let's hold on that point for just yeah. a second. One illustration of how screwy and problematic their policy timing is, is the fact they had to do an emergency ban yeah, earlier this year. Of course. I mean, if they had just set this up to make ban and restricted lists in the midpoints between sets, that wouldn't be an issue at all, right? It would not. Right. So they've got this policy. They've shifted a policy. Essentially what they did, they, they shifted... Look, the history of the banned and restricted list timing is is a long history. But the basic pattern from the late 90s on, mid-90s to late 90s, is that it was a quarterly announcement. Then there was a tiny shift where the and there was a shift from 
the announcement being the beginning of the month and taking effect at the end to taking effect on the 20th of the month. And then they shifted to taking effect almost virtually immediately. Then they abandoned the quarterly approach to set timing releases. Then they made this another announcement this year that they would have an interval in between. And then essentially they created two exceptions to it. Mm-hmm. They had an emergency banning. of I forget what that card was called. You're talking about Etherworks Marvel and Standard. or No, no, I'm sorry. No, Not the emergency the one. Sorry. You're talking emer- about Felidar Guardian and Standard. Cat, yeah. yeah. And then they, then they created another exception here. So this doesn't work. This is the, there's something the pol- if the policy has to create two exceptions in one year, the timing of the policy is problematic. You know. Anyway, but let me. So the other thing that's interesting is Kevin. You call it modern. I'll call it ancient. <laughs> the the original policy banned and restricted list policy announcements happened about a month or so after every new set. There was no set timing for BNR. It just happened when they needed to do it. Yeah. There was there was no schedule for it. If you go look at the restriction of Mishra's workshop, it happened like, first of all, right after Antiquities came out, they restricted, a couple weeks later, they restricted four cards. And then, like, a couple weeks later, they restricted Mishra's workshop. You know, right after Legends, they restricted a handful of cards. So, I would say it's actually ancient. You know, they're, they're kind of moving back to an ad hoc policy. <laughs> I mean, that's humorous, and I see your point, but the distinction, of course, is is the difference in data right? The reliance on actual data as opposed to these are the people that the DCI talks to and here's what they think about the format after two weeks. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But I guess guess there's something else going on here, right? Which is the DCI is trying to break out of the prison of their timing, right? It's a prison and they're trying to, they're trying to modify it to make it work for them in a practical, pragmatic fashion. And I say, fine, do that, but don't like try and like hamper yourself in. Maybe what they should do, maybe what they should do is just say we are going to make announcements when we feel that we, we feel we need to make it, you know, and abandon the pretense of having these set times, right? I mean, like maybe they could say we're going to have a set time like twice a year, just as a, 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 to force them to check in. But maybe they should just instead of maybe it shouldn't be set. Maybe it just needs to be when we need to make a change, we will make a change. You know, and that I I think that that creates other kinds of problems though. I think it creates a certain kind of tension and possibly fear in players with regard to if something is becoming a, a, a nearly a problem or definitely a problem in a metagame, then how long before it goes, right? And it's it's also hard to manage in the sense that when something starts to become a problem, how quickly do you react as an organization? Okay, let me let me can I let me respond to both. One yeah. is that there's an asynchronous problem with restriction. If you see a problem crop up, um this has been a, there's been a timing problem in vintage, and almost every one of the restrictions, the restrictions timing, even if the restriction has been valid, the timing has been odd. So yeah. when we, you know, the lodestone restriction, it was like there was this in February there was this surge of lodestone lodestone decks, and then in in like March it sunk, and then the restriction took effect like in April. It was like the timing was weird, which is weird. Yeah, you know, true. And so there's a kind of asynchronous n- nature to the peak of the problem and then the timing and the intervention and that's been a problem for a number of years now um it sometimes syncs up nicely like the restriction of treasure crews happened at a really nice point but i think i think the the second problem of how long do you wait so i think the, fir- the first problem is that it becomes more synchronous it becomes more sensible if you just respond to a problem i think the second problem of how long do you wait and people's nervousness i think that if they were to implement the policy i suggested over time there would be precedent and i think the basic precedent is you should almost always wait between three and six months for a problem to demonstrate itself to being 
a sustained problem over time and that you give enough people to try and make a metagame adjustment. And so here's how I kind of think about it. If it's an old problem and the problem becomes worse because of new printing, you need less time to evaluate to do something. So you wait three months. If it's a new problem, you need to at least give a deck six months. If it's a brand new card, right? You really do. You need to give... I mean, they give Trinisphere a year. They've given Paradoxical Outcome a year. I think that you need to give, a, at a minimum, six months. I think if you, they implemented the kind of policy I mentioned, and they over the next five to ten years, there's a handful of restrictions, you have precedent. That precedent then guides future decision-making. So I actually think that's a better way of doing it. Like you say, we're going to you know, have a deliberate announcement, you know, whatever, once or twice a year. But mostly you just handle it as ad hoc. You, you restrict cards when you need to, and you ban cards when you need to, and, and, the, whatever. and the once or twice a year, if you do something like that, that becomes your opportunity to unrestrict. I, I acknowledge what you're saying as it pertains to vintage, but you have to acknowledge that the time periods you cited, 3, 6, 9, 12, they don't apply uniformly across formats. Six yeah, months. I'm talking from a vintage perspective. Of, of course. course, you are. Which is fine. <laughs> yeah. Six months of a bad format in standard is enough to is enough to affect their quarterly earnings, right? So they should. Well, well, well. Then why again? So let's say standard is problematic, and and you have quarterly earnings impacts. Why would you wait artificially until this midpoint between sets or the next set? Just act immediately, right? <laughs> well, right? that's what they see? did this year. Yes, right? exactly. That's my um, point. Is that uh, they've done it already? They just turned it into the policy. I think. <laughs> I think a simpler and easier to grok method is to have both signposts available to you. Have the set release signpost like this one that's coming up, you know, two or three weeks after the set release, and then have another one between releases available to you also, and just say what they said, I think earlier this year, hey, we're not planning to take action at every one of these signposts, but we're making you aware that these are the points that we're going to choose. I think that was the best solution. The problem was this year they didn't implement it well with regard to standard, but I still think that's the right solution. I think they just need, to, we have growing pains. I think they needed to ease into it and figure out how to actually implement and make the right choices. They just made the wrong choices this year, at, <laughs> even though they had the right timing set up because all the pros, I mean, I don't follow standard that closely, but I know what happened. And basically everyone was like, hey, you just missed your window to do what you should have done. And then they came back like a couple of days later in one case and said, yeah, you're all right. We should have done this. And then they just did it retroactively. I mean, this year was just executed poorly. But I think that schedule of let's have two polls rel relative to set releases yeah. available to us. And that's the schedule. I, I think that's fine, but I think <laughs> it's not it's not optimal. I think the optimal would be you, you react when you've identified a problem and you have different metrics for different formats and you just intervene mm -hmm. when you need to. I just think that would be better. It, well, it would be more synchronous. It would result. It would result in more sensible timing decisions from a player perspective over time. Uh, I think there are probably yeah there are probably certain scenarios where it's necessary. I would agree with that. But but people don't really care much about that. <laughs> <laughs> but Kevin, but more importantly for our audience is the in potential impact of this for Vintage Championship. Yeah. October seventeenth might be a good timing for the Pro Tour. But what they probably didn't account for when they first announced it is it's exactly three days before Vintage Championships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is pretty wretched. Uh, so, so as, as a Band-Aid for that, we get this editor's note. Yes. We're aware of the proximity. We do not anticipate making more changes to Vintage in the next BNR window. 
In the event we do, we'll have a solution for communicating changes. In other words, what they're saying is they'll make yet another ad hoc right. <laughs> announcement if they need to make a restriction to right. my point, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if what, so, there's, there's two things I take away from this. Is One is that if Ixalan really causes a problem, we'll probably get an announcement faster than the 17th for Vintage. Or if, or if Paradox of Outcome becomes like 40% of the metagame. Uh, that's a good point too. If paradox, yep, that's a good point. And also, uh, the other the other possibility, I suppose, is that they're not planning to surprise unrestrict windfall or something like windfall, yes. you know, three days yes. before the event. That's the, that's the safe takeaway here, I would say. Even Agreed. though they specifically addressed that windfall might come off in the future, it's probably not going to happen on October seventeenth. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, so it'll be very interesting to see, and and we don't. There's not a lot of time for us to release a bunch of shows between now and then, given the way we record our shows. But yes, if paradoxical outcome somehow leaps up to forty percent of the metagame, you better believe that we are going to be screaming it from the rooftops so that the DCI can act before the seventeenth. Yeah, we will definitely do our set review, our excellent set review, relatively soon, right, Kevin? Oh yes, I mean we're going to be recording that in a matter of weeks here, so it'll be it won't be a month until our next show. Cool, but let's turn to our metagame prediction. Yeah. So, you know, I want to point something out. This is part of a bigger picture metagame but one of the things we alluded to and it i think we, we touched on it as a potential criticism of this announcement is that there is a legitimate non-zero risk that even this change doesn't do enough uh, for the vintage metagame and it's something that we alluded to during our last discussion about what we predicted and what we thought was right and it also relates to Ixalan, because also today, the day of the banner restricted list announcement, we also got a, an interesting, unprecedented article from Wizards about acknowledging the Ixalan leaks that happened last month or a month and a half ago. That is the, the uncut sheet of foils that was, that was removed from a, a printing facility and, and posted online. One specific card that we've briefly touched on in that is the Sorceress Spyglass, which was confirmed today. We know that's a legit Ixalan card and coming before Vintage Champs. And I specifically pointed out how if you restrict a sphere from the workshop decks, a new printing could easily take that spot. Therefore, all this ties together in my saying, it could be that just restricting a sphere like they've done makes a spot for three to four copies of Sorceress Spyglass, and the deck doesn't lose much gas. Because Sorceress Spyglass is another one of those kind of cards that just disrupts your opponent <laughs> and makes them not be able to cast spells, etc., etc., or activate certain abilities. So I think it all it all relates. I believe that there is a risk that this sphere restriction, sorry, I keep saying sphere, but this thorn restriction um, doesn't do enough to temper the representation of workshops. It might in the period between now and Ixalan, where there's some upheaval and people aren't sure how they want to build the deck, etc. But I really feel like there is an immediate replacement candidate that is not functionally the same, but can turn games in a similar disruptive fashion. Interesting. So one of my predictions is that, and oh, okay, <laughs> I know I'm saying a lot of things at once here. You and I were never going to predict that Workshops was going to fall to, I don't know, 10 or 15% of the metagame. No, There's no, no way. No, right? although I, I did have a conversation with someone who said that if Sphere was restricted, it would go from 44% to 15%. And I literally laugh. <laughs> like people like people laugh in those samurai movies, but it's like, ha 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 
That, yeah. yeah, you and I, are, I mean, I know without any pre-conversation at all that we're never going to predict anything less than, say, 25% for shops. Yeah, there's a so, floor. Yeah, a- I, I, I predict that the floor is probably closer to 30%, actually. That number yeah. might change before and after Ixalan, right? Because new cards, new printings matter. But to use an example from today, look at Ryan Glacken's NYSE winning list. He right. wasn't playing Tanglewires. No. It's it's not rocket surgery to just take out three thorns <laughs> and put three or four tangle wires back in and you still get yes. a good deck. A yes. very good deck. A very yes. competitive, disruptive, powerful deck. That deck, there's no way that deck isn't still like 30% of the metagame. There's yeah. no way it's not tier one. Right. Yeah. So in terms of the workshop pillar, th- we have definitely not decimated the workshop pillar. And I want to add another additional caveat to that, and that is we've made a distinction in the past between workshops and taxing as different kinds of categories. Yes. Unfortunately, as we previously addressed, this thorn restriction really diminishes the other taxing archetypes, the Eldrazi decks, white and tribal. And I think there's a very real possibility that a lot of that percentage of the metagame just goes to shops. So if you weaken shops from 40 or 45%, by if you weaken them by an arbitrary let's say 20 percent but then you add back in another five to ten percent from the people who can't play eldrazi anymore then the net result is gonna be in the 30 to 35 percent range unfortunately those are semi-arbitrary numbers but i legitimately believe that we end up at about 30 percent shops give or take so let me just say kevin that um, I, I want to acknowledge how hazardous this is hazardous this is <laughs> and, and part of the challenge is that if it was just one restriction, it would... I mean, look, in the last podcast where there was a restriction, I made a precise metagame pres- pres- uh, prediction and I was pretty much dead on. But here's the challenge. The challenge is we have two restrictions hitting two tent poles, which means yeah. that it's much more hazardous and much more, many more variables to consider. I've, uh, I've looked back at pa- past restrictions and one of the interesting restrictions was in 2008 when they did the wave restriction, which was Flash, Gush, Merchant Scroll, Brainstorm, and Ponder. And that restriction was really interesting because the metagame was really hard to predict coming out of that because the best decks before that were, was before Gush was unrestricted was Gifts Ungiven, but Gifts Ungiven was restricted right when Gush was unrestricted. <laughs> so you have to go even back further to figure out like what actually what actually emerges from the wreckage. And it was even more complicated because Flash was errated. So you had so many things happening at once. You have to. It's really hard to figure out you know, what happens. I think that um, what happens here is I think workshops will go from 44% of top eights on Magic Online to, I'm going to say, around 30%. I think you're, I think you've got it about right. And I think, obviously, the mentor deck that was, you know, the Dak Delve mentor deck goes away. I don't think that deck goes away. I think that, obviously, it's going to need to replace mentors with other cards. Maybe it'll be Thing in the Ice. Maybe it'll be Young Pyromancer. Maybe it'll be some Joe Brennan concoction of like Vendillion Click and Young Pyromancer and Mentor. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think it'll continue to survive. Yeah, could turn I, into that Jeskai Planeswalker moat deck. Right. Yeah. I do think that that um, Paradox Glaucum right now, which has been, it's really gone up and down. I mean, over the course of August, Paradox Glaucum's percentage of the metagame in the challenges has been and 27%. So, and then in July, it was 12%, 13%, 19%, 16%, 16%. So it's really kind of all over the place. Paradoxical outcome could be, now, I I don't, that was, I don't know where it's going to actually land, but paradoxical outcome 
could I think is going to see a boost. I think we're going to see paradoxical outcome go up. Now, the countervailing force is, of course, I think we're going to see more Null Rod decks because the restriction of Mentor allows more Stony Silence in the format and more Null Rod, period. So Bug is more likely to be playable. Uh, I think Delver-type decks, Pyromancer-type decks are more likely to use Stony Silence and, and, and Null Rod. So I think we'll see more Null Rods and more Stony Silence, but I'm not sure in what quantity. So I think we're going to see Paradox outcomes settle around, let's just say I'm going to make a prediction, 22-23% of top 8s. Sorry, percent of... I think it's going to be around 25% of top 8s and 22-23% of the metagame. I think that's roughly where it's going to settle. I love the tension that exists with Null Rod, of course. Yes. And I would like to reiterate that by pointing out how Young Pyromancer is a logical go-to as a replacement for Monastery Mentor, but Young Pyromancer has this critical weakness to Walking Ballista, which hasn't really been it hasn't really been thoroughly tested because Mentor okay, tested is not the right word. It hasn't been thoroughly vetted, maybe <laughs> demonstrated because Mentor was the superior win condition. You know, there was a time a couple of months back where you would see mentor decks that had four mentors and two pyromancers for a while, right? Yes, exactly. And they just kind of fell by the wayside yes. because the pyromancers were so weak against ballistas. If you if those pyromancer decks suddenly have null rods to disable the ballistas, then there's an interesting tension and you could find some some fight there. Unfortunately, null rod is antithetical to harsh mentor. Yes. In a sense, yeah. it turns off Harsh Mentor yes. in those matchups, and so there's not good synergy there, so the decks have to find their new path. But I think I think there's some space for those Delver Harsh Mentor decks that include some young Pyromancers and probably an increase in Null Rods uh, to find their way. But I also don't think there's any way that that deck can... That deck can't punch through to like a 20% deck. I think its its ceiling is like 10 or 15, maybe. And that's, and that's pushing it, right? It might not grow any further than yeah. the 7 or 8% it is... These I, days, you mean harsh mentor or or the? I mean harsh mentor specifically. Yeah. yeah. What do you, what percentage of the metagame do you think the Dak Dell draw engine will constitute after after this restriction? Wow, that is really interesting because it, it can splinter into so many decks as you've alluded to. Yeah. It it can become there could be a, you know a hodgepodge single mentor aggro control deck that has as you said clicks the the planeswalker moat approach is attractive to many the harsh mentor decks could just. They, there could be some harsh mentor decks that just add white for some plows and, and their one mentor. So but I think as a percentage of the metagame, it's still going to be relatively high. It's probably still 20 to 25%. No, 25 is a little high, I think. It's probably 15 to 20%. Well, yeah, let, I mean, part of it is thinking like, what percentage of gush decks are in the format right now? Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about that in the last podcast, but we had like percentage of gush after the restriction. And I don't remember what the specific percentage was, but, you know, in the last challenge, for example, just to give you an example, there are 32 decks in the reported. 11 of them had Gush, right? <laughs> so yeah. that's, you know... It's over 33%, yeah. Yeah, it's 34%. So, uh, but, but for example, the winning deck had one Gush and four Paradoxical Outcomes. So it had... It didn't have DAC, though, but it did have Dig Through Time, Treasure, and Gush. Right, right. Um, you know, so... so it, um, what do you think? Are you comfortable uh, estimating the total portion of the metagame? for that I engine, think, so to speak? Yeah, I think... So, you know, just, by the way, taking... Separating Gush and Paradoxical Outcome, you know, it's obviously there are fewer decks. I think that it's probably going to be... I think it's probably going to be around 15... I think we're going to finally move the Gush deck. You know, the one Gush, one... The DAC. I think that's finally going to move to around... Now, it doesn't always have DAC, but it usually has Jace Fringe Prodigy <laughs> if it doesn't. Sure, I think sure. it's going to finally move to around 15-20% of the metagame. 
I think it's going to okay. decline from the, you know, whatever percentage it is now to more around 15%, I'd say. It's hard to say, though. I mean, it prob- yeah. probably around 15%. So we've talked about a reduction in shops of, depending on your perspective, between 10 and 15%. Yes. We've talked about a, a near elimination of Eldrazi, the tribal well, and white. Yeah. From the, they're very small the, percentages, though. Right? They're now. small. They're like you know five to ten percent at the highest at the you know recently. So that, but that's an overall loss of about twenty percent of the metagame. You're predicting, and I think it's right, an increase of paradoxical outcome, but that's not much of an increase. It's more of a sustained increase of five to seven percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We've so we and we're talking about this DAC delve portion of the metagame shrinking from what's currently thirty to thirty-five percent down to fifteen we're, to twenty. We're gonna see py- pyromancer decks come back. That's what we're gonna see. Okay. Yeah. Pyro pyro gush tendrils. Is that what you're alluding no, to? No, I think it might. Or I think more long delver. Who knows? I think it, we could see. I think it's. I don't think it's gonna have all the big mana. And we're gonna see. We might. The e- Grixis therapy decks. I think we're gonna. It. The only problem with Grixis therapy is that you can't use the one mentor, and the one mentor is really powerful. And you also want stony silence. I think. So. <laughs> so I. Well, you don't need stony when you've got null rod, but. Yeah, but the one mentor is actually worth having. So you're thinking. Oh, so you think you just you just can't afford to be Grixis because the mentor is better than therapy? Yeah, I th- basically, I think that's right. So that that's well, you think that's going to be a significant representation of the remaining deck delve decks is Jeskai mentor without three mentors effectively, just with pyros yes. in place of mentors yes. effectively. Yeah, there might be there I, might be increased I, I think, uh, planeswalkers. And yeah, things, I think we're going to see some. There's going to be some different people are going to have to test it out, but I think we're going to see something like that. Yeah, well, I, I agree that deck doesn't disappear. I, no. I agree. I think that something like that is still in the you know the five to ten percent range of the metagame it's kind of a, a halfway point between the current harsh mentor decks and the current Jeskai mentor decks so that the two mentors may trade places in significance <laughs> that's funny but so i think we're predicting an overall reduction in in the major things except for outcome so what takes up the slack what takes up that space well Is it bug you think leovold makes a big push i think there's certainly a possibility because leovold the bug decks are a natural predator for shops in the past, yes. but they couldn't get one over on Mentor well enough. They can fight Pyromancer much better than they can fight Mentor. So well, my instincts tell me that bug takes a, a large increase off of this. I think we're going to see. I think we're, it's really hard to predict exactly, but I think the effects are going to be pretty diffuse. So I think that the yeah. increases we're going to see are going to be marginal at all across all the other archetypes. We're going to see a little bit more land still, a little bit more bug, maybe a little, maybe more than a little bit more bug. We're going to see some more. I mean, you know, more control decks, you know, various forms and flavors. I think we're just going to see a lot of a little bit, a little, a lot, a little of a lot, a little bit more of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair estimate to start with, but I don't think that's where we settle exactly. Well, well I, the metagame, the metagame the- has, for example, like, let's say, I don't know what the percentages are, but let's assume, actually, let me look at the last challenge results. So let's just assume that the last, um, Hold on, let me actually pull it up in a second. So in the last challenge, uh, Dredge was 11%. Oath was 5.5%. Is it unreasonable to think that Dredge gets 2.5% boost by both these restrictions? I mean, you know, something like that. Well, I mean, that's that's within the margin yeah, of error. Yeah, I mean, I mean no, but, of course not. You know, and then we could see, you know, big blue decks and blue control go up a little bit. I think though they all stand to gain from, gain from the restriction. Oath stands yep. to see a little bit of gain. So if you accumulate... And then combo, certainly, I think we'll see a little bit of game. We'll see people trying Yogmas Bargain, trying DPS decks, trying, I, you know, Chrome Mox decks. I think I disagree on the Oath front. I don't feel like Oath profits from this very much. Well, at all. Oath is interesting. Oath has these weird decks. There's all these different 
weird oath decks, right? I mean, there's like the oath decks that we that play. Um, you know, uh, what is it? The weird land combo with punishing fire. That deck, that <laughs> right. deck obviously has a lot to lose in that. It's, to some extent, it was targeted mentor. But on the other hand, if we see more pyromancers, it gets even better. But if you see more Leovolds, it gets way worse. That's true. It's true. Yeah, the punishing fire technique does not it's, need not apply. It's really challenging to to predict exactly where Oath is going to land. That's all I'm saying. Well, I, I mean, people, yes, people because will of play the, Oath. the great diversity. Yeah. People, yeah, people will play Oath in any metagame, I think. And there's so much different Oath that you can't pin it all on one. I agree. But I just don't think it benefits very much from the what changes here. Yes, you could make the case that Oath is easier and more reliable to cast because fewer spheres. But the flip side is, if those spheres are replaced by tangle wires, are you are you that much better oh. off? If those spheres are replaced by sorceress spyglass, and they see that oath in your hand, and they name Gristlebrand, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did you did you really win that much? I guess we'll we'll see we'll see. But I just don't feel like oath is a big winner here. I think that the space that's that's made by a reduction in Jeskai mentor and a and a slight reduction in shops, I think that space is primarily taken up by paradoxical outcome and various young pyromancer lists and bug i don't think that dredge profits from this meaningfully i don't think that oath profits from this meaningfully i think that paradoxical does and i think that pyromancer just kind of takes the place of a lot of those just guy shells as you put it and i think bug is the big winner because bug is a natural predator to shops that had a hard time with mentor so i mean i think in broad strokes we've got the metagame down you and i both i think the real key is going to be where do shops fall I, I expect shops to fall between 30 and 36%. That's my range, somewhere around there. Yeah. I think it's going to, sh- there's no question it's going to fall at least 5%. That's the bottom. The question, the ceiling, I think, is probably, like you said, in other words, let me put it, flip it. The floor for shops is about 25%. And I, I don't think it's going to go, I don't think it's going to be higher than 36% of the metagame. There is a danger yeah. that it shops still is a problem. If it's at the top, of, if it's, <laughs> if, if it's at the top of that, that curve then shops will still be a problem but i don't i just don't think you can restrict well, thorn and not see a reduction in shops yeah i agree with you but i want to tease out what you said there a little bit further if the metagame ceases to be a duopoly if the second place deck splinters into multiple different jeskai variants some grixis stuff some bug stuff and there's a lot of variety in the blue decks okay maybe a lot is a strong term but there's no one 30 percent deck if it if it comes to three 10 percent decks something like that and then shops is still thirty five percent. Yeah. Do you no. do you have to take yes. action on yes, that you metagame? Do. Yes, you do. You can't let that be. <laughs> I mean, we've seen metagames like that in the past. You know what? You know what metagame that reminds me of? The metagame where Tezzeret existed and was dominant. Tezzeret was like forty five percent. The rest of the decks were ten percent. That's not a healthy. That's an yeah. imbalanced metagame. So there but it is. I, I mean, just don't think that's going to happen. We definitely run. The, I think paradoxical outcome. We definitely run that risk. Paradoxical outcome is going to be too strong to see that happen. I think that there's a natural ceiling on paradoxical outcome from a from a card design standpoint i agree with you the fact that any deck can run mind break trap yeah and that 30 or more percent of the metagame is still going to be a sphere based deck. i agree with you but with, i think paradoxical I outcome mean, th- this is this is you're looking at it from a strictly numbers perspective remember paradoxical outcome implicates not only numbers but but the fear of play like of not getting a turn uh-huh. I see. and so if paradoxical outcome is 30 percent of top eights it'll feel like 50 percent well that's i I acknowledge that point i do agree that so those kind of combo decks create greater fear and and they're more those kind of miserable play experiences but you cited 30 percent 
And I don't actually think that's possible. I think I don't think outcome can be that high. I think it can be, and I think if it is, it'll get restricted. It might even get preemptively restricted. That, so I think that's the card to watch. I'm really hoping it doesn't. And I'm hoping that if they were thinking about restricting it, they would consider unrestricting like Chalice or restricting Mox Opal first. But um, yeah, I hope we I hope we can mm. avoid that eventuality. So I hope you're right. Well, uh, I also hope we can avoid that eventuality because I think that would be a shame. But that's what a lot of people but wanted. We'll have to I mean, see. Brian Kelly and Rich Shea yeah. said they want Paradox Alpha restricted, or maybe you know, that's what Rich Shea certainly hoped for. But I, I really hope we don't have to go there. So I agree. Well, so there's our metagame prediction, but we still have one more element of the show, which is normally at the start, and that is our announcements. Steve, you have some some concluding content coming up. Do you <laughs> well, not? why don't you why don't you uh, lead with our big announcement? Okay, okay. Well, so Steve and I are happy to share, and hopefully, we're not stealing too much of Randy Bueller's thunder here. But the Vintage Super League starts again on September 12th. season seven. Season seven, and what's more, Steve and I are both in already. Now, you might say to yourself, Kevin, you kind of lost more than you won in the last play-in tournament. How does that work? Well. Uh, we're not going to go into great detail here, but let's just say that the structure of this year's VSL, I'm sorry, this season's VSL is changing a little bit. And in the interest of not stealing Randy's thunder, I'm not going to go into more details. But Randy said it was cool to say that Steve and I are both in. I look forward to it greatly. Should be a good time. Look to Randy Bueller and his announcements on Twitter and, and Facebook and other places for the greater amount of details about how the structure of this season changes. Awesome. Really fun. I'm so glad to have you in the league, Kevin. I, you were a wonderful player and commentator, and I'm really looking forward to battling you again and playing with you and talking to you <laughs> about it, and it'll be great fun. Well, thank you, and I agree on all fronts. I'm really excited again. Um, one quick announcement is that my old Magic series for Vintage Magic is done. Twelfth and final chapter in the series is in the can. It should be up in early September. Um, just to tease it a little bit, so in this series, I've tried to cover all of the different facets and corners, major corners of, of old school. I've covered like the three topics of um, you know, selecting abandoned restricted lists, what sets to permit, and what rules to apply in kind of excruciating detail. <laughs> I've also covered the deck, zoo, and combo strategies. Chapter 11 was my combo article. But the last article is going to be on prison, prison strategies. Kevin, one of our favorite topics. And, oh, and yes. I've, I've featured your deck, Kevin, from Eternal Weekend last year. Why don't you tell people cool. what you played? Well, I, I came up with this crazy idea that I wanted to put Living Plane into play and then play Tabernacle at Pendrel Vale <laughs> such with- that people couldn't, yeah, such that people had to tap all their lands and, and pay for them if they wanted to keep them. And then all you have to do is pepper in either a winter orb or a drop of honey and <laughs> either slowly or quickly in some cases eliminate all your opponent's lands and then pay more, play more artifact mana than them so that you can uh, you just kill them with your own lands. It was very much fun. I had a good time. My record was not that hot, but part of that is the fact that I'm not an avid um uh, old school player and the deck and was not ideally constructed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I test I had zero testing. So 
had a great time when you view this article you'll recognize my deck not only by name but also because the deck picture is in a block m for u of m so uh yeah had a great time and who knows i might run that deck back in a different iteration at some what, near the most point. insane par- part about it is that your that deck is worth like three times as much as it was last year because of these old school price spikes <laughs> the drop of honey the tabernacle is you know the drop of honey is like quint- quintuple in price and the uh tabernacles were twice as much and living plane is quick uh, tripled in price so you're yeah well i mean but i think i i can take a little bit of blame for the living plane situation but not the rest of that stuff <laughs> <laughs> what i wanted to say is that um is that kevin it's a really really interesting deck and in this article in prison so in the last article i did on combo i went through like the six different major combo archetypes and there aren't as many prison strategies there are quite a few there's part of what i wanted to really illustrate in this form in this series and I hope that the series, I want people to go to the series and bookmark the series. And I've set it up so that if you go to any article in the series, you can find all the rest of the article. So you can, there's a whole chapter index at the top. But part of what I'm trying to do is get people to realize there's a lot more options in, the, in this format than you might realize. So you might think, well, 93, 94, what draw engines are there? What draw engines aren't there? You have <laughs> Sylvan Library, Bazaar Baghdad. Um, but you also have things like... Um, you know, you have a card advantage engine with land tax. You also have um, incredible uh, draw. There's, of course, Jam Day Tome is a draw engine that's quite powerful. But then there's also things like Book of Rass and Greed, which sees see play in different decks. Book of Rass is sees play in the Power Monolith combo deck. Greed sees play in both aggro decks as well as a variety of other decks. And you also have Lich, Lich in Dark Heart of the Woods. There's a lot of draw <laughs> engines. There's a lot of tutors, too. Transmute Artifact. There's others. And so part of what I'm trying to do is illustrate what the key kind of cornerstone foundational elements of the format are and bring those to light. So in, the, in my prison article, obviously Nether Void is a very popular O'Brien school era uh, you know, prison deck. But there's also the Winter Orb decks, which use Winter Orb and Icy Manipulator and or Relic Barrier. And your deck is an example of that. And there's also the Stasis decks, which have used um, Stasis and or Kismet or Time Elemental or Boomerang. Interestingly, the very first Magic World Championship deck, Zach Dolan's deck, mm-hmm. is called Stasis Control. Now, he only has two yep. Stasis, but he has one of everything I just mentioned. He has Winter, Winter Orb. <laughs> you know, he's got Winter Orb. He's got Time Elemental. He's got all that stuff. He's got all the combos. Icy Manipulator. The other thing is, though, that people might think those are the only two prison strategies, but they're, strategies, but they're not. Heiner Litz created um, the strategy of Mana Vortex and Landy, which is awesome. The sum, the short of it, is that it's a two-card combo that wipes the board, and all you have to do is get a, la- a Mox and a Black lo- black Vizen play to win the game. And Kevin's discovery of Living Plane and Drop of Honey slash Winter slash uh, Tabernacle and kind of a synergistic fusion is is another one. You've grafted these prison elements together, and it's a really cool combo. So I think people will really enjoy my final article. It's, a, it's also a tournament report. It's a summation of the series, and I hope I hope the series is complete. I think it's complete. I think it covers, you know, it's not exhaustive, but it is comprehensive. <laughs> it, it, it covers, I think, the major ground in the format. So I wanted to advertise that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to mention is just that um, the 2005 chapter in the History of Vintage series was published in, in August. 2006, 2007, and 2008 all completed and at the editor's hands. And I've actually outlined the rest of the series, which is 2009, 2017, Kevin. Um, of course, there are things that are going to happen in 2017 that I can't outline, but I did put things in there that we can anticipate, like Vintage Champs and whatever. 
So this series is just rolling, and it'll be done by the end of the year is the hope, and we'll hopefully have it all compiled into a beautiful hard copy that people will be able to get. So you'll be able to see, you know, all the most famous decks in the history of the format from 1993 to 2017. And not only that, but you'll see, the, read the stories, you'll see, the, you know, the, the images, the advertisements, you know, I've done tons of interviews and continue to do, do them uh, with people played in different eras. And the whole point of the series is that there are these five schools of vintage magic that have continued to evolve over, the t- over time, but they essentially use the same strategy. And so I hope people really, really enjoy the final product and continue to enjoy the series as it rolls out digitally. So look for that. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So, Steve, I want to do something, since this show is not marathon length, something that we don't do enough of on this show, and that is some legitimate listener feedback. And in this case, part of the reason is so that we can touch on a topic that we have just kind of not discussed because there's been so much else to talk about. So Stephen Whitehead writes us and says, So I know it might not be the best card ever, but I think Miri, Weatherlight Duelist, bears at least mentioning in the set review. He says, I made a short post on the Mana Drain, First Order Thoughts. The short version is, I think it has a lot of potential for being a potential tool for a mentor mirror that also has text versus shops in White Eldrazi. This was a, this was a now, Commander card up. that we, didn't, we did not review Commander. Yeah. <laughs> yes, precisely. Uh, I bring this up for that reason and for a few others, but um, we are not planning to review Commander. Uh, Wizards has done something that they committed to doing and, and think have made good on, and that is they're not printing eternal playable cards in Commander, really. But... There's always things that spark people's interest, and this Miri card is one of them. So, Steve, let's do a quick mini review okay. of this, all right? Miri Weatherlight Duelist is 1GW, Legendary Creature Cat Warrior. First strike. Whenever Miri Weatherlight Duelist attacks, each opponent can't block with more than one creature this combat. As long as Miri Weatherlight Duelist is tapped, no more than one creature can attack you each combat. And she is 3-2. Now, obviously... This card loses a bit of luster given the restrictions. And that was not the reason why we haven't reviewed Commander by any stretch, but it does contributing factor at this point. I believe that this card has does have some relevant text against the two best decks in the format pre-restriction. Yeah. And however, I think that she is, like so many other things, unfortunately, just not quite yeah. reliable enough to be a game winner in a mentor matchup. Assuming your opponent simply has Mentor in play and you're using her to stop from right. dying. So the, applica- the application f- for this... Yeah, the application is clear, but I don't think she's powerful enough. So th- essentially the application is it's a moat against Ma- Monastery Mentor and Monk Tokens with the additional value that when it attacks in for damage that uh, neither Mentor nor his minions can block it unless it has two or three prow- unless the controller has two or three prowess because of first strike. Well, it can block right. it, it just won't kill it. So right. it's kind of like a hate bears moat in a sense. The problem is you the I'm problem sorry. is you say is that it's extremely vulnerable to counter magic and or removal. Well, yeah, you could address the counter magic with cavern if you yes. so chose. Unfortunately, cat warrior are not two creature types that Human. are best suited <laughs> for a cavern, yeah. And you can defend against you know you could defend against your miri dying in a number of different ways or you can just try this, and overload the swords to plowshares that are inevitably targeted at This after. thing gets destroyed so quickly by walking ballista. But <laughs> yeah, that's really unfortunate. And and Ravager but, also overcomes it because you can just put all the tokens on. I mean, it can the first strike isn't going to matter. Yeah, that's a good point. I I, I do agree. It has some relevant text against shops. You know, a three three power first striker on defense can can stymie certain aggressive boards that don't feature a combination of Ravager or Ballista. That you know holds 
revokers at bay pretty well. It holds uh, foundry inspectors at bay pretty well, even lodestone golem, of course. But the real value of the card is is when you're attacking. So there is very there are very easy combinations of workshop creatures where it's a losing uh, it's a losing proposition for you to be attacking, right? If, as you just said, ravager. If if they get a four or five power ravager, then your attack is is non-productive because you're going to lose the race, especially if that Ravager is untapped when you attack. So I think that while it could, in certain scenarios, be okay, on average, it's probably going to be a disappointment for three mana against workshops. And I believe that she is sadly not disruptive enough against Mentor, meaning you could be in a scenario where you're not dying to the horde of Mentor tokens, but you also hasn't removed that horde of mentor tokens, and you're probably not gaining any ground as far as damage goes because new monks are just blocking her every turn. Yeah, I'm I'm sad to say that I really enjoy Miri, especially at EDH, but I don't think she's good enough to make the cut invented. So for this episode, if you have any feedback on what you think the metagame will result in from this set of restrictions slash unrestrictions, and or give us your thoughts on if you think this was the right choice or if you think the DCI could have made a better choice, you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.